wanted to apologize. So you know what mom did? Mom went into the bedroom of the oldest son, sat down on the bed, tried to play mediator, and, and reminded her eldest child that the Bible tells us to not let the sun go down on our wrath. And her son looked up at her, and he said, Mom, you know I can't stop the sun from setting. I tell you that story for this simple reason. When it comes to personal responsibility, there are some things you can do, and there are some things you cannot do. I cannot change history. You cannot change history. We cannot go back in time and erase slavery from our social memory. We cannot go back in time and stop discriminatory acts that you may have experienced. We can't change history. You know what else we can't do? We can't make people change their minds and hearts. We can't force it. We, we, we can stand up here and we can, can proclaim the news of the, the Word of God. We can proclaim the Gospel and tell people what God's Word says on the matter. And we can preach equality and we can preach unity and we can preach responsibility and we can take social action. We can do all those things, but we can't force somebody else to think differently. Those are the things we, we can't do. Not because we don't want to, but because it's not possible. But what can you and I do when it comes to matters related to race? Well, the, the one thing all of us can do is focus on ourselves. That's why this lesson today is called Take It Personally. Because the number one thing that needs to happen in the life, particularly of Christians, is we need to apply God's Word to matters of race in our own lives. Turning your Bibles to Micah chapter 6, we read this just a moment ago as our scripture reading, and it's going to be our launching point for this lesson today. See, I can do something about myself, and the way I do that is by understanding what the Lord requires of me and then by applying his requirements to my day-to-day life. In Micah chapter 6, the prophet Micah presents a courtroom scene in which God is the complainant and the nation of Israel is the defendant. And Micah depicts Israel as defending herself by, in effect, saying that God, God is just too hard to please. That it's too difficult to, to make God happy. That his, his demands are too cumbersome. So if you look at verse 6 and 7 of Micah chapter 6, they're, they're going to posit a, Micah on behalf uh, in representing the nation of Israel, posit some rhetorical questions. Is God going to be satisfied with thousands upon thousands of sacrifices? Is God going to be satisfied with rivers of oil? Is God going to be satisfied if we give up our firstborn as a sacrifice? Micah is presenting the mindset of Israel that God is just too hard to please. But then Micah switches gears in verse 8. In verse 8, 
he essentially tells Israel that they don't have a leg to stand on. In a very terse response, he declares that they have no defense because the Lord has told them what he requires. And what he says next is considered by many to be one of the most comprehensive and all-embracing statements in the whole Old Testament. He says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This morning, I would like for us to apply this trilogy of requirements to our lives today, particularly when it comes to the issue of race. Because Micah's message is specifically focused on decrying injustices committed by the nation of Israel. If you were to study the whole of Micah, you're going to see that the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, had become a very unjust place. The rich were taking advantage of the poor, devising ways in which they can take their land and their assets for themselves to broaden their own individual empires. Princes and judges, leaders of, of, of civil matters, were notorious for taking bribes and making decisions based on who gave them the most money. Businessmen in the day were known for having scales that were uh, unbalanced in their favor so that when they would weigh out their currency or weigh out whatever they were trading, they could take advantage of the buyer. The poor were oppressed. Those who were without were oppressed. Those who lacked a position of power were oppressed. And yet here is a prophet of God reminding the people that they've got to turn back to God by doing justice, by loving kindness, and by walking humbly. And the truth is that what God expected of his people in the 8th century B.C. when Micah's prophetic work was going on is still what he expects of his people today. Because if you jump over to Matthew chapter 23, you'll see Jesus criticize the religious elite of his day, the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's going to call them hypocrites. And here's why. In verse 23 of Matthew 23, Jesus calls the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites because they scrupulously tithe to the point of counting herbs, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law which he identified as justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Then he said, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. I'm afraid that all too often we neglect weightier matters because we're so focused on easier to observe matters. So let's consider how we apply the weightier matters on a personal level today. And we're just going to go back to Micah chapter 6. See, here's what God expects of us. God expects us to do justice. 
Now, what does this mean? You, to, in order to understand what it means to do justice, you have to start with the word justice. What is justice? The Hebrew term translated justice here in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8 refers to that which is fair and that which is right. So, for example, under Mosaic law, if you go back to Exodus chapter 23 or Deuteronomy chapter 16, you'll see that God's people were specifically instructed not to lie or to give in to peer pressure or to accept a bribe when they were serving as a witness in a legal matter. And it's all because if they were to lie, if they were to, to go with the majority because of peer pressure, or if they were to take a bribe, then they would be perverting justice. Under Mosaic Law, if you go to Leviticus chapter 19, you'll also find out that God's people were instructed to utilize just balances and weights in their business dealings because they were expected to do no wrong in measures of length or weight or quantity. Now, I know those two examples really don't matter that much to you. I provide them to show you what God thinks of justice. It's about doing what's right and fair for all people. That's God's concept, and God expects his people to abide by that. Do you know why? Because God's people are expected to be just, just like him. You know, when we think about God, in fact, I, I caught the tail end of Stan Nutt's class and at the very end of it, he mentioned what, what is often considered the chief attribute or chief characteristic of God. Love. God is love. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8. We could also, so we take that verse and we say that, that God is the standard of love. And, and then we, we will go in and we'll consider the statements about God's goodness. And we'll say God is the standard of goodness because Jesus himself would declare in, in Matthew chapter in, in Matthew chapter, uh, oh, let me find it real quick. Matthew chapter, oh no, that's why I messed up. It's Mark chapter 10. Jesus would declare in Mark chapter 10 that no one is good except God. He is the standard, the definition, not just of love, but of goodness. But God is also the standard. God is also the definition. God is also the epitome of justice. In Deuteronomy Chapter 32 and verse 4, Moses praised God, saying, His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. And then he refers to God as a God of faithfulness without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Ezra would declare this in Ezra chapter 9 and verse 15. Ezra said, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. The Psalms repeatedly declare that the Lord loves justice, that his throne is built on righteousness and justice, and that he works or executes justice for the oppressed. Here's my point. You can journey from Genesis to Revelation, and one thing you're going to learn about God is that he is just. He is the definition of what it means to pursue what is right and fair in all matters. In fact, he has a much more liberal view of fairness than you and I do. And we know that because his son went to Calvary. Is it fair? Is it right 
that his son died so that you and I can live? Not at all. He is the epitome of justice, of what is fair and what is right. Just as he is the epitome of love. And he expects you and I to do justice because he loves justice. Here's the point. Doing justice means treating people the way that God treats people. That's why I began this whole series by looking at God's perspective, by considering how God sees people. Our responsibility is to imitate the character of God, not just when it comes to love, not just when it comes to goodness, not just when it comes to holiness, not just when it comes to forgiveness, but also when it comes to justice. But what does it mean to do justice? It's one thing to know what justice is, but what does it mean to do justice? To do something is to actively engage in it. So to do justice implies that the people of God are actively involved in the pursuit of and the execution of justice. We've already talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan in this series, but I want to appeal to it again. Because if you go to Luke chapter 10 and verse 37, at the very end of that parable, Jesus instructed us to go and do like the Samaritan rather than the priest and the Levite in that story. Now, if you recall the parable of the Good Samaritan, it boils down to this. There's an injured man on the side of the road. A priest and a Levite see him, but they refuse to stop and help. They keep going on their journey. It's a Samaritan, somebody of a different race, who sees the injured man and chooses to compassionately help that man. And at the end of the parable, Jesus gives that instruction you go and do like the Samaritan. Now think about this. What is the primary difference between the Samaritan and the priest and Levite? The primary difference is the Samaritan acted. The priest and Levite did not. In that story, the Samaritan did something the priest and Levite did not. Now, you may recall that the parable of the Good Samaritan began with a question about love, particularly who is my neighbor. And while Jesus was broadening our definition of a neighbor to include other races, he was simultaneously narrowing our definition of love to emphasize active, intentional good done on another's behalf. You see, to do something is to be active, not passive. To do something means that you, you get involved. You don't just pass by and ignore. And God, in Micah chapter 6 and verse 6, calls on us to not just think about justice, to not just 
love justice, though he will use the love terminology in a moment. He calls on us to do justice. That requires activity. That requires you to be involved in something like the Good Samaritan. And I think that narrow definition that comes from the parable of the Good Samaritan that, inf- that, that demonstrates that love is an active, intentional good done on another's behalf, I think that narrow definition lies behind Paul's declaration in Romans chapter 13 and verse 10 that love does no wrong to a neighbor. And then he has an instruction in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 which says, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone. See, when we reflect on those instructions coming from the Apostle Paul, when we reflect on the parable of the Good Samaritan, it should cause us to realize that to love my neighbor according to Christ's standard, I must not only say the right thing, I must also do the right thing. And so as one commentator said, This phrase, do justice, that appears here in Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, it challenges the reader to learn what is his particular duty and obligation and to perform it. So the divine requirement of doing justice does not permit a passive attitude. It it expects active involvement. But what does that look like? What does that entail? as it pertains to issues of race. Well, first, it means that you care about justice to the same degree that God cares about justice. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God presents this repeated expectation of his people that they will be the agents of justice in this world. You can go to Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19. As God is speaking to Abraham and renewing or communicating about the covenant with Abraham. Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19. This is what God says. He says, I have chosen him, referring to Abraham's son Isaac. I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. The point there is this, that the people of God have been chosen to do justice. And now look at this passage uh, coming from Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Isaiah provides these instructions to the children of Israel. He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. And then there's Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 3. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. My point of referencing these passages is to show that, that particularly throughout the Old Testament, God had this expectation that his people would be agents of justice. And if you pay attention, oftentimes the justice is directed, God's justice is directed towards those who are oppressed, particularly the fatherless, 
and the widowed and the stranger in the land. Do you remember what James said is pure and undefiled religion? Well, two of the things he mentioned in that first chapter of his letter had to do with widows and orphans. God expects us to care about justice to the same degree as Him. And so doing justice means that we care about justice like God cares about justice. But it also means that you stand up for what is right anytime you see injustice being carried out. Such a stand may take the form of correcting somebody from your own race who says something or does something that is bigoted, discriminatory, divisive, or racially insensitive. Such a stand may take the form of participating in legal and peaceful means to encourage societal change. Such a stand should take the form of unashamedly proclaiming the Bible's message of equality and unity in Christ. Such a stand is where many of us get uncomfortable. We get uncomfortable because we see people who don't stand and maintain a right relationship with God in the process. There are ways that people take stands but, for, but stop being Christians in the process. We may, we may need to take a stand because we're called to do justice, but we never stop being a Christian when we do. Because our identity in Christ takes precedence over everything else. God expects us to do justice, but you know what else God expects? He expects us to love mercy. Now, some translations use the word kindness and says, say love kindness. Others will use the phrase mercy and say love mercy. The Hebrew word being translated there can go either way. I read from the ESV earlier, which said love kindness, but I prefer the phrase love mercy. And so I'm going to focus on this term mercy right now. But what does mercy mean? Maybe the best way to define what it means to be merciful is to look at the parables. According to the parable of the unmerciful servant, which you can find in Matthew chapter 18 between verses 23 and 35, there was a master who forgave his servant of a massive debt. That servant then went out and found a fellow servant who owed him a small amount of money and threw him in prison for it. He had just been forgiven of an extraordinary debt. And then he imprisoned somebody over a minor When the master found out that his servant had done this, look at how he responded. It's Matthew chapter 18, verses 32 and 33. The master summoned the servant and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
And should, you, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In the context of this parable, mercy is equated with forgiveness. But mercy is not limited to forgiveness. You may recall in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we, we already mentioned earlier, in Luke chapter 10, verses 36 and 37 in particular, Jesus asked, which of these three, that's a reference to the Levite, the priest, and the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer who had posed the question to him answered, the one who showed him mercy. So in the context of the parable of the Good Samaritan, mercy is equated to compassion. So based on these two parables, the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18 and the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, I believe mercy is best defined as undeserved beneficial treatment. Whether that's from an act of forgiveness or an act of compassion. And here in Micah chapter 6, we're told to love mercy. Think about what it means to love something. To love something is to prioritize it. When Jesus said in Mark 12, verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, he was communicating the importance of prioritizing God. When in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, he said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. What Jesus was communicating is that you, your love will dictate your priority. And in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, when he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He didn't use the word love, but he used the opposite of it, hate. And the way he was using it in that context was to say that your love, that, your, your, that I must take precedence. I must be the priority. Hating everyone else is indicative of prioritizing me. So when Micah said that one of God's requirements for his people is to love mercy, he was saying that mercy must be prioritized. During Jesus' ministry, mercy was not prioritized by the religious elite. Twice in Matthew's gospel, Jesus instructed his religious opponents to learn what the phrase, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, meant. That statement came from Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. The first time he said it was in Matthew chapter 9. When he dined in Matthew's house and the Pharisees were critical of the fact that he was fellowshipping with people who were known sinners. The second time he said it was in Matthew chapter 12, when the Pharisees criticized him for allowing his disciples to pluck grain out of a field on the Sabbath. In both of those passages, Jesus was arguing for the primacy of mercy. His opponents thought a relationship with God was all about ritual, was all about keeping the rules, was all about the traditions. So Jesus told them that their theology lacked a crucial element. And he said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. His point was that we cannot 
push mercy to the periphery of discipleship. It's not a luxury we can indulge in on occasion. Instead, we must place mercy on the center of the stage. Remembering that Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 and verse 36 that we must be merciful even as our Father is merciful. See, mercy matters because it's a divine attribute as well as a divine requirement. We must be people who are willing to provide undeserved beneficial treatment to others, whether that's in the context of forgiveness or the context of compassion. Now let's apply that to issues pertaining to race. Loving mercy may mean that you practice turning the other cheek, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 39. In other words, Loving mercy may mean that you forgive and educate your brother and sister in Christ when they say or do something that lacks racial sensitivity. Loving mercy may also mean that you practice considering others more important than yourself, as Paul declared in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. In other words, loving mercy may mean that you voluntarily and intentionally make changes to the way you think and speak and behave so that you don't offend your brother or sister in Christ in the future. And loving mercy may mean that you stop assuming things. Stop assuming that people, particularly brothers and sisters in Christ from a race different than yours, are going to be antagonistic towards you. Stop assuming that people from another race than yours, particularly brothers and sisters in Christ, stop assuming that they won't be offended by what you say. Stop assuming that those who are from a race different than yours, particularly those who are brothers and sisters in Christ, stop assuming that they know you care about them. Loving mercy... means that we're going to demonstrate forgiveness and we're going to demonstrate compassion to all people. Micah gives us one more, one more instruction in chapter 6 and verse 8. And that is that God expects us to walk humbly. Humility is defined as a modest opinion or a modest estimate of oneself. I think Paul gives a great definition of it in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3 when he says, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. That's a humility definition. Now here's what humility does for the Christian. Spiritually speaking, humility results in an admonition, admonition, no, an admission of inadequacy. See, one thing all of us as Christians need to do is to recognize and acknowledge that we fail. 
And sometimes we fail miserably. That's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to do because we don't like to admit when we're wrong. No, not me. I'm very good at that, right? Think about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's a parable focused on prayer that we have in Luke chapter 18. You have these two individuals who go down to the temple to pray. The Pharisee arrives and he thanked God that he was not like other men, such as extortioners or the unjust or adulterers or even the tax collector over there that he saw. Now, what was that Pharisee doing? In his arrogance, he was announcing how much better than other men he was. And that indicates that he was focused on comparing himself to other sinful people. Meanwhile, you've got that tax collector who was over there laying down on the ground, refusing to look in God's general direction. He's beating his chest and he's pleading for God's mercy. Now, what was the tax collector doing? He wasn't comparing himself to other sinful people. He was comparing himself to God and realizing that he was undeserving of God's grace because he was a sinner. And who did Jesus say went away justified in that parable? Was it the self-absorbed Pharisee who compared himself to others, or was it the self-abased tax collector who compared himself to God? Here's the point. Humility is the result of comparing ourselves not to other flawed people, but by comparing ourselves to a holy God. See, our flesh wants to exalt the self, but in order to do that, it has to find a standard that offers an easy comparison. So when we measure ourselves spiritually, our flesh encourages us not to compare ourselves to spiritual giants, but to spiritual failures. In other words, instead of comparing ourselves to the Apostle Paul, we like to compare ourselves to Judas Iscariot. It makes us feel a lot better. At least I'm not like him. And I'm afraid sometimes we do that when it comes to issues of race. And we compare ourselves to people who are more racist than we are. And we say, at least I'm not like that guy or that group. And it makes us feel better about where we stand on this issue. But the problem with such a methodology, whether it's measuring our spiritual success or measuring ourselves on, on a, a, a meter of racism, the problem is that when we compare ourselves to other people, we have chosen a comparative standard that is far too low. You don't claim to be the strongest person alive because you lifted a toy that an infant couldn't. You don't claim to be the fastest person alive because you outran a toddler. Well, some of you might. You don't claim to be the smartest person alive because you defeated a child at tic-tac-toe. The reason you don't do those things is because you know the comparative standard is too low. And yet that's basically what we're doing when we compare ourselves to other mortals. That's exactly what the Pharisee was doing 
when he prayed in the temple. And here's the thing. You will always, always be able to find someone that can cause you to pray, Lord, I thank you that I am not like him or I am not like her. You'll always be able to find someone worse off than you to satisfy your self-absorbed prayer. But we're not called to compare ourselves to each other. We're called to compare ourselves to God. Jesus didn't say, be more perfect than your neighbor. He said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Our comparative standard is God. I say all this because Micah instructs us that one of God's requirements is for us to walk humbly. It may just be that when it comes to issues of race, this is where we mess up the most. Because walking humbly means that we need to accept and admit that we've either intentionally or unintentionally contributed to the problem at times. Think about Nehemiah. Here's this guy living in Persia, serving the king, and when he hears about the destruction of Jerusalem, more important, more specifically, the fact that Jerusalem hasn't been repaired yet, when he hears about it in Nehemiah chapter 1, what does he do? He weeps for days. He spends days praying to God. And listen to his prayer. If you want to turn there, it's Nehemiah chapter 1, and it's verses 6 and 7. And Nehemiah, this guy, removed by hundreds of miles from the destroyed city, prays this. He says, The sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, is the cause. He goes on to say at the end of verse 6, Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. In other words, Nehemiah admitted the failings of the Israelites as if to say, we deserve what we receive. But what's really significant here is that Nehemiah accepted his own guilt in the situation. He didn't just sit there and point fingers and say, look what they did. Look what my forefathers did. Look what my ancestors did. He pointed fingers at himself, knowing that in some way he contributed to the problem because he sinned. That's humility. And maybe, just maybe, walking humbly means that you and I need to accept and admit that we've intentionally or unintentionally, consciously or unconsciously contributed to the problem at times. But walking humbly may also mean that we need to recognize that in every one of us, there's room for improvement. When it comes to the issues related to race, in every one of us, there's room for improvement. You know why? Because I'm not 100% like Jesus yet, and neither are you. Until that day when he returns and we join him in that eternal abode of heaven, where all sin, where all forms of division, where all disunity, where all evil, where all temptation are null and void, we will never be 100% like him. And that means until that day, there will always be room for improvement. And maybe, just maybe, walking humbly means that I need to recognize that I can do better.
I've got to admit that the past four weeks have not been the easiest sermons I've ever preached. I have felt very inadequate at times addressing this subject. And at the outset, I, I, I asked for your forgiveness if I say something that offends you, and, and I ask that still. Extend grace to me, because I don't know everything. I'm not an expert on matters of social justice. I'm not an expert with knowledge of the history or, or, or plight of African-American people in our country. I'm not an expert on sociology. I'm just a guy that studies the Bible and does his best to present what I understand it as saying. And while I can point to how Scripture describes God as one who sees everyone equally, and I can talk about the example of Jesus looking at the stories of his life and how race didn't matter when he ministered to people. And I can turn to the book of Acts and I can see how the church dealt with issues of race over, throughout the first century and how they resolved those issues and how they set a pattern and an example for you and I. I can do all that where it gets very difficult. It's when we have to take it personally. Because in an audience this size, whether we're talking about those who are in person or those who are online, there's a lot of racial residue that has been passed down over the years. And I'm certain that as I talked about some of these applications from Micah chapter 6, that some of you are thinking about specific instances and specific situations that I haven't considered. And there's probably some in here who are thinking, he didn't say enough. He didn't push hard enough on this issue. He didn't challenge people enough. I apologize to you. And there are some of you who are sitting here saying, I think he overstepped. I, I think he said some things that didn't need to be said. I think he may have gone too far on that particular topic. I apologize to you. Not because I did something wrong, which sounds very arrogant. I apologize because that may mean I didn't say it well enough. This year has been a challenge for all of us because it's brought to light issues that in our country we just wish would go away. But maybe the reason they haven't gone away is because Christians haven't done enough. Back in June, I called a couple of brothers in this congregation who were not of the same race as I and asked them to have lunch with me. It was the most uncomfortable phone call I've ever made, not because of who I was calling, but because in making the phone call, I had to acknowledge to myself and to them that it had been far too long of a wait for me to have such a conversation. 
And when we sat down for lunch, I will never forget the words of one of my, my, my African-American brothers in Christ. The very first words out of his mouth. Or I just want you to know that I'm a Christian first. If we're going to take this issue personally, that's the real beginning. Recognizing that all of us are Christians first. And as Christians, we're going to do God's will in all matters. And it's high time we recognize that God has something to say, even when it comes to issues of equality, unity, and responsibility pertaining to race. I've kept you here long enough, but I do want to share one final illustration with you that I know you've heard from me before, but I think it's important. Some unknown monk wrote the following around 1100 A.D., He wrote, When I was a young man, I wanted to change the world. I found it was difficult to change the world, so I tried to change my nation. When I found I couldn't change the nation, I began to focus on my town. I couldn't change the town, and as an older man, I tried to change my family. Now, as an old man, I realize the only thing I can change is myself. And suddenly I realized that if long ago I had changed myself, I could have made an impact on my family. My family and I could have made an impact on our town. Their impact could have changed the nation, and I could indeed have changed the world. Let's start by changing ourselves and allow that to trickle throughout society. Isn't that what Jesus called us to do? To change the world one person at a time, starting with ourselves. This morning, as we gather here and we draw this series to a close, I'm asking each of us to really consider where we stand on these issues and whether or not we're standing where Christ wants us to stand. But before we close, it may be, it may be that someone here has never become a child of God, that someone here has sins that have never been remedied by the blood of Jesus. It may be that someone here has never corrected a sin in their life after initially receiving that remedy. So we offer the Lord's invitation now. If you need to become a child of God by confessing your faith that Jesus is his risen son, by repenting of your sins and being immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins, we invite you to come. If you are a child of God, but you've wandered away from his plan, you realize that some sin is reigning in your life or that there's some other correction that you need, then we invite you to come. It's an invitation for us to be united today. Whether you're outside of the children of God or in. So if you have any need to respond to the invitations today, 
We invite you to come while together we stand and sing. Tis a 